This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Jen Flown, and we're going to be talking about human trafficking related topics, as we often do. Thank you for listening. We like to talk about research and get as much data as possible into our discussions. Uh, Today we're going to do it a little more anecdotally and talk about some of our personal experiences, specifically what we've learned along the way and what surprised us. Yeah, I just sort of, I think, happier, maybe funnier, interesting things. sort of things that I think I think the things that have sort of shocked us are the things that like we never thought we would learn about this field or that when we did learn about them and we were like oh my god how did this happen what is this thing right well and I'm guessing if any of you are listening you have some interest in the topic of modern slavery human trafficking etc when I originally looked at Corbell back in 2012 uh, Joseph Corbell School of International Studies I didn't end up going till 2014, which is great because then JJ and I got to study and hang out and be in the human trafficking center together. I ended up finishing with a master's in international human rights, JJ international studies, and then going the PhD route, right, JJ? I am. But when I initially looked at the topic, I thought, well, human trafficking, really horrible, Corbell had a program in it, and so I'm like, well, this looks like something I should seriously consider, since there there is a center focusing on that for two years at the graduate level. And I had the impression, because I had heard about awareness events, I was part of and still hang out at Everyday Joe's Coffee House, I really (laughs) like coffee, and we've had awareness events originally heard of invisible children from an event there and so i'm like well there's people doing something about this and of course human trafficking is really really horrible and so what am i going to contribute to this is this something i'm truly interested in but of course i'm sure it would be meaningful because it's again it's a really horrible thing and what and that's one of the first things i learned is really there isn't anywhere near as much being done to stop human trafficking as i thought Mm -hmm. there's a lot of rhetoric and there's awareness events. Glad there's awareness events. But in terms of funding, especially compared to other things within law enforcement, in terms of research and how much funding is applied to research, the difficulty of dealing with it in the supply chain. Like you don't have people who come out and say, I'm for slavery, which is good. I'm, I'm glad that by and large people are not for slavery. Yeah, it's a weird it's a weird claim to make. And the people who make those claims are normally uh there's there's other issues at play there. Mm-hmm. But really it's something where there's a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And that is like US administration to administration and you know, there's bits of progress, but it's a difficult thing to deal with, especially in supply chains in other countries where you have subcontractors. That was one of the really disappointing and frustrating things to learn is there's a lot that could be done and not nearly enough. 
I don't know about you, JJ. What was your experience? Mine was, so I guess mine was a little different because mm-hmm. I guess from coming from particularly the latter part of the time that I spent in, in China, like rural China, I was sort of used to this idea that like not a lot was being done or, or being managed for mm-hmm. people or that like services like weren't making them their way out necessarily to people that they should be. So like I wasn't shocked by that because I already had like a pretty strong feeling that like at least governments or sort of private practices weren't providing the appropriate funding or like care for people. That didn't shock me. What shocked me was actually when getting into sort of like the vulnerabilities of people themselves, finding out sort of the different types of people or the different like industries people were trafficked in. I expected everyone who was trafficked to follow a very particular mode of either like a vulnerable child or sort of like um, uneducated maybe migrant, you know, someone who has intense like social or economic vulnerability. And then when I came to the trafficking center, one of the first stories that we, we used as like a case study was of Kizzy Kalu. We haven't talked about that on this podcast, but are you familiar with that, Seth, at all? I don't remember it. Okay, so Kizzy Kalu um, was uh, here in Denver Highlands Ranch. Uh, he was a businessman, and what he did was he trafficked in foreign nurses to the U.S., and eventually he was charged with 95 different counts that included trafficking and forced labor, mail fraud, visa fraud, unlawful detention, things like that. So, and what Kalu did was he hired a variety of nurses, the vast majority of which were from the Philippines, as nurse instructors or supervisors at this university in Denver that he made up. So he went to people who had medical degrees, like really sought after medical degrees who expected they would be earning about $72,000 a year. Which is, a, which is a high salary, like, even for the U.S., and these are people who, like, were expecting to earn a high salary because they had an in-demand job. But when they arrived here in the U.S. Um, at, this, at this fake university he had created, what he did was he sent them to work in long, uh, long-term care facilities, but that he had taken from them their visa paperwork and whatnot. And so they were told that if they didn't work for him he would have them deported and then if they were deported and lost their visas then they would never be able to work in the u.s again and then actually could affect their medical licensure so these people who who were told they were gonna make seventy two thousand dollars ended up i think making on on the vast majority of them if they made any earnings it was about ten dollars an hour what happened is he contracted them out to sort of care homes where they would be paid 35 dollars an hour but they were required to pay uh, 25 of that to Kalu, and then on top of that, they had to pay him assorted fees, fees for housing because he was keeping them all like in an apartment complex, uh, fees for driving, fees for clothing. So they were making absolutely, you know, very, very little money. And he was using like this, this threat of, well, I'll report you to the Department of Homeland Security to keep them under control. And it was just a weird moment for me because I was used to thinking of like, people working in restaurants or people working in factories as exploited, right? Or as trafficking victims. It was a little harder to think of them as being like a doctor or a nurse or a professor, you know, sort of someone in like a very academic or sort of very like well-respected, I guess I would say, field that's thought to be very prestigious or that's thought that like law enforcement would be very cooperative with. And so maybe that was sort of my own biases or maybe my own sort of like being a little bit of a snob you know, as someone who's in academia being like, no, it couldn't happen to me. But like, no, no, it can. It, it definitely, 
it definitely can. It can happen to anyone. And I think that's, that's rough to think that it can happen, you know, because I, I'd been to like a training that mentioned like, Hey, if you work in the healthcare industry, you should be able to, to recognize human trafficking victims. But the fact that these are trafficking victims who could be working with you and you wouldn't notice was just really shocking to me. I wasn't prepared for that. I was prepared for ranch hands, not like nurses. So that was, that was a surprising one for me. And that was like the first day. And I remember coming home and just telling my husband, I was like, I know nothing. <laughs> but this was pre-Game of Thrones, so there wasn't a meme I could do with it. It was just me being sad. Yeah, so another big one for me, and we'll have to do an episode specifically on this. We've danced around it. But uh, one of the books we read was Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. And it talks about peonage after the Civil War, which is a form of slavery. There were multiple forms, like there was convict leasing would be one, but uh, peonage specifically involved people being arrested and then leased to private businesses. And they were, in that sense, more disposable because they weren't actually owned. And while it wasn't as pervasive as chattel slavery, chattel slavery where you had like 4 million people, but it was pervasive enough that it was something that was threatened where people could be arrested for things like vagrancy which mm -hmm. is not having a job where you're a poor former slave or you're the child of a former slave and where there's limited educational opportunities and all of mm -hmm. that sorts of things the odds of not having a job would be higher than average and so you could be arrested and then you'd be fined and put into the system and uh, among other things in his book, he mentions federal investigation so that it was on federal record. And in reading the book more than once, I really wanted to throw it across the room because I was so angry that I didn't know this and that it's not really part of the historical record very often. Mm -hmm. And I'll get into this at some point in the future, like just how far to the right I used to be to where in my teenage years I was dismissive of slavery where I was dismissive of civil rights and I would you know I bought into a lot of the lost cause southern narrative I thought of civil rights as being something that liberals and or communists stoked which is still a, a narrative out there so when I talk about slavery, when I talk about civil rights, I come from a very different place. And it's been a journey with a lot of reading, a lot of wrestling. And so whether or not you think I'm right on everything I say, it's been things that I have worked through and where I've made major adjustments in my belief system over the years. And so realizing some of the things that happened with peonage, convict leasing, other forms of slavery that suddenly make the civil rights movement make sense when you see how the South went backwards with Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. I was irate. I felt betrayed multiple times while reading that book and realizing this is true. Like there, there are federal cases here. Like this is not disputable. <laughs> like this happened. And so that, that was a big one for me. Like emotionally, that was the biggest one. No, and I think, 
too, part part of the issue too is that like you and I are both coming. I mean, you've been very like open about your your background, and but mine in particular, like not coming from what I would label was like a might a white supremacy in any way background, but like I'm I'm a white lady, right? Like I grew up in a white area. I'm a white, you know was that learning through that book and then sort of like researching it online that like this is something black America has been well aware of forever, whether it's talked about in academic circles or not. So sort of realizing, you know, I think that was the first moment sort of in graduate school that I was like, ah, this is privilege personified. Like this is, this is a moment to sort of reevaluate maybe how I, how I picture myself in the world because I thought that I knew this and I don't clearly. The other thing for me, too, was I know personally what I had a hard time with is that, and again, like, this is very much like the Seth and JJ hour <laughs> at this point, especially for this podcast. I feel like I've been oversharing a lot lately. But no, like, my, my thing was is that, you know, my my Catholicism fate, my, my background in it, going, you know, to Sunday school and teaching Sunday school and being involved in all of that was what led me, I think, in a lot of ways to being involved in anti-human trafficking efforts. This idea of, of what, that every person has worth and that every person deserves to have the opportunity to have a good life and, and dignity and equanimity amongst, you know, resources and things. And then when I got to the Human Trafficking Center, we started talking about sort of historical religious organizations or religious organizations that are currently working, particularly in raid and rescue efforts, and how these efforts can oftentimes actually be harmful to the very people they're trying to save or how religion has been used as a tool to control traffic people. I had a really hard time with that. I, it actually caused a pretty severe, uh, the second year of my master's program, a really severe crisis of faith for me where I, where I lost my faith, I, I would say, for a little bit because religion is so often used by a tool either as a fundraising method for anti-abolition processes or to maintain control over traffic people or to to gain access to populations that might be trafficked and that's something that like I really struggled with this idea that like this thing that had always been a, a super important moment in my life seeing see it become harmful for for other people how it hurts other people and then we I was at an, an event once and we were talking about this and I mentioned it and somebody um, just said yeah like the Catholic Church has only ever hurt me and that was just like knife in the heart for me, you know, because I can't make that better for someone. And I also can't modify like the history of the Catholic Church. And so that that was a rough moment for me, like at least in, in terms of my own faith and like evaluating myself. And now I just get tweets that like I'm a bad Catholic from people who read my academic work. And that's OK. I'll take that. But <laughs> It was more of like a self-internalized, like I don't know what I'm what position I'm rolling here with. Well, and I've seen all sorts of things from people of faith. I heard a podcast on Fresh Air with Father Boyle, Father Greg Boyle, who works with gang members and helps them with jobs and love, as the title says. And it was one of the greatest podcasts I've heard this year. I, I felt inspired. His faith inspires me. And so mm-hmm. that's an example of somebody that's great. <laughs> but then... Like, like in our initial human trafficking class, which was our, our first quarter at DU. Which, we- by the way, I was very intimidated of you <laughs> in that class. I was like, this guy is brilliant. He has a briefcase. He knows what he's doing with his life. Crap. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. And yet you're the one who is talking 
like the most overall. <laughs> yeah, because if I am paying an obscene <laughs> amount of money for a degree and I have questions, I'm going to ask them, damn it. Also, I just really liked fighting with our professor, uh, Professor Claude Destray. There is nothing in the world, actually, that makes well, I mean, there's a lot of things in the world that make me happy, but one of, one of the true joys in this world is when he's making an argument that I know he doesn't actually believe in, but he just wants someone to argue with him, participating in that exchange. It's what I imagine being friends with Kant would have been like. It's great. Mm. <laughs> right. Nice to remember when you shared opinions of ben- Benjamin Skinner after class. Oh, yeah. God. Oh, poor little Skinner. I want it hard. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of feelings. That was the other thing, guys, what everyone out there in in podcast land has to learn, is that this was like a 9 a.m. class in an exceptionally hot room with the worst lighting. It was basically designed to make us want to murder each other. So, Benjamin Skinner wrote an anti-human trafficking book called A Crime So Monstrous, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. He, he, like everyone, has pros and cons, but uh, we'll move on. It's not one of my favorites. Meanwhile, when... uh, there's there's what I consider to be a, a, a wonderful book written by Yvonne Zimmerman. Uh, when she when she came in to, to present that book, actually as someone who graduated from the University of Denver, I think I think my entire time spent in class was essentially me going, "Hi, I, I love you. I love your brain. Can I can I hold it?" <laughs> so I like Yvonne. Was- I did have some critiques of her book. But- oh yeah, no, there's there's critiques of everything. I yes, think. yes, no, but overall- nobody nobody is safe. No. We'll critique everyone if we're in the mood. That's very true. But I will say Yvonne listened to my critiques and bought me a cup of coffee. So mm-hmm. she wins. Right. And, and we did have wine with her that one time the second year. Oh, that is true. That mm-hmm. is true. Yeah. But we, we heard stories and uh, Professor Destray would tell us stories about people, like his personal interactions with people of faith, some okay, some disturbing. And then... You know, some of the stories of students and you know again I, and i give that example with father boyle for a reason because i've had some really great experiences and i've heard of some great experiences and if you're not a christian there are some people who are just quietly going about caring about people but then there's these other things where i just cringe it just it's like that happened like they're, they're actually that there are examples where People have just come out out of a trafficking situation, and they're getting some sort of hard sell with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm I'm all for people being Christians, but I think pushing it on them after they have been coerced for a period of time is a bad idea. It's bad on multiple levels, and so yeah, yeah. Well, a thing that's, I think it's because we both recognize it as something that's very important in our own personal lives, but that it's very important, the element of choice in it for us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like what we believe is very fun, at least for me, it's something that like I'm constantly thinking about, I'm restructuring, I'm trying to reposition myself within my faith. And the thought that people are coerced via, well, if you want food and services, you've got to participate in this. That's That's hurtful. Yeah, and there was a book... I read by M. Griffin, The Mind Changers. He's a communications scholar. He's written in on communication and persuasion. And he also a person of faith. And so in that book, he was talking about how he feels about using duplicitous or coercive or lying methods to bring about salvation. And mm-hmm. 
I'm in agreement with him that it's not worth it if you're using a means that is unethical. And I think, like in general, coercion is bad. And that's partially why we're in this field. So in the late 90s, because of the efforts of Kevin Bales and others, they brought up this concept of modern slavery and human trafficking and the legislation that followed is different than chattel slavery. Chattel slavery was legal. Human Mm -hmm. trafficking is not legal. But what I realized reading books like Slavery by Another Name is slavery never stopped. It never stopped in the U.S., that it's been going constantly, that peonage that the federal government applied pressure during World War II because they thought we should look more respectable since we're fighting the Nazi regime, who were very Uh not respectable. And even though it was highly lessened, even then peonage didn't stop. And this is not even getting into prisons, Uh modern prisons. But that slavery has always existed in the United States in some form. So when thinking about it, it's not as if we eradicated it over 100 years ago and suddenly it's popped up again. No, it's never stopped. And in trying to figure out how to deal with trafficking today, that's really important. And that was something that I didn't realize before beginning this work. Any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think that that's kind of what we've what we've talked about before was sort of our conception of like slavery by another name and things like that. This idea that a lot of times when people ask us questions or I, I, at least sort of when we go to these events, like they're human trafficking related events, or at least when politicians talk about human trafficking, it, it's coming from this place of like, oh my gosh, it somehow came back, right? Like somehow slavery came back and because slavery came back and, and we didn't even know about it, what are we going to do? How do we, how do we modify this new, this new criminalized slavery that's like suddenly appeared? Well, that's not how that works actually, as it turns out. Uh, It's always been here. There has always been an exploited class. There have always been populations that have been subject uh, to legalized, or if if not legalized, but sort of just permitted slavery or situations of slavery. And when we talk about slavery now, we, we need to be very, very honest about what it is, how it happened, and how it it never went away. It's not that this is a new thing that came back. It's that it's always, always, always been here. And that's rough because it's hard. It's hard to go through and say, hey, you know, I know you care about this thing for whatever reason. That's a that's a major social issue now. But before we can talk about that, we need to talk about we need to do a history lesson. We need to we need to break down settler colonialism. We need to break down certain theories of capitalism. I'm going to say the words Karl Marx and make you uncomfortable. Like it's it's very hard to tell people that you've had they've had an emotional response to something and they want to go out and solve it now. But before they can really start doing that, that they have to have have an academic lesson. That's hard for people. Understandably so. The, the thing that I'm still actually struggling with, the thing that I was shocked by is I knew, like, I think that kind of everybody knows if you're buying, like, a t-shirt for $2, right, from, like, a Forever 21 type store, or, like, really, like, actually, I would say, like, anything under, like, Walmart, anything under, like, 10 bucks. Like, you know when you buy, like, sort of fast fashion, or I knew when I bought, like, super, 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 super cheap coffee, Right? Because Seth and I have talked about the fact that I am a terrible person and I will drink like the two ninety nine giant coffee tub from Costco. 
just just to get my caffeine fix. But so like I kind of always knew that there was like exploitative labor processes involved in that. Right. Like even if you're not involved in the trafficking field, everybody's heard sort of the historical stories about Nike and and their sweatshops or like a Bangladeshi uh, garment district sort of like burning down, you know, that sort of thing. People are aware of it. I think they hear it. That's not entirely new. What what I was shocked by was how pricing didn't mean an insurance that trafficking wasn't happening. I guess I had always sort of had this, I believe that if super cheap things that are produced sort of like in a fast manner, like as cheaply as possible for the cheapest price, I was like, well, there's no way that that can be good, right? Like that's gotta be necessarily some sort of exploitation involved. So then the response to that is, oh, well, hey, if this is, if I'm buying like a hundred dollar pair of boots, from like just a US based retailer, then implicitly what I'm doing cannot possibly have anything to do with trafficking. This has got to have a clear supply chain because it's more expensive. Isn't the expense tied directly to whether or not it's ethical? And and maybe because you guys are out here in the world listening to human trafficking podcasts, that's going to seem hopelessly naive of me. Um, and it turns out those things actually aren't, that's not always true. That just because it has a Made in America sticker doesn't mean that every single piece of the component of it was made in the U.S. Just because it's made in the U.S. doesn't mean it was human trafficking free. Just because it was grown in the U.S. doesn't mean that it was human trafficking or exploitation free. And moreover, just because the price point is higher doesn't mean it's safe. And so I think we kind of discussed this way back when we were talking about sort of like grooming materials and cosmetics and that I found like really high line very high price point cosmetics, like $40 foundations that didn't have a clear supply chain when I found literally like $4 foundation pigments and things online that did have a clear supply chain. So what it seems to actually matter is in what the company is, is willing to put into it or be involved in. So that was one of the things I think that hit me and had me be like, oh, like you, you were wrong. So there, there are things that I purchased they're like, I purposely went for a particular company or a higher price point because I thought I was doing the right thing. And it turns out I wasn't. Uh, sometimes the cheaper option actually was actually the clean, the, the cleaner or safer option. And, and that was a little, it's a little hard to deal with, especially coming from, I had, you know, all of, all of my sort of experience before coming to the human trafficking center, will come to grad school more broadly, was all like sort of indirect migrant services or, or education. So it was, okay, well, how, how do you make sure people get paid? How do you make sure people in factories aren't inhaling terrible chemicals? How do you ensure childcare for, for women that are away from their support services? How do you stop people from being sexually assaulted on the job? That, when it came in sort of looking and actually tracing supply chains, like going sort of away from people directly and sort of, bigger, broader issues, like, well, how do you tell your tires have been constructed in such a way that no one was harmed in their making? That that was a big switch for me, I think. I know still, personally, I'm very much more focused on sort of the, the direct person involvement rather than the supply chains. I'm just not very good at supply chain process tracing. Some people, like you, are awesome at it. Yeah, that was hard. And I will say now, like, it is it is difficult. It's, it's very hard to be a grad student with a limited budget 
it's it's made me a de facto minimalist. I got very into KonMari and like sort of de facto minimalism just because I was like, well, I can't buy anything. <laughs> Everything is awful. So if I can't purchase anything, what am I going to do? Ah, I guess I'll live without it. You know, so. Because, man, I used to love buying things on AliExpress, which is like Chinese Amazon. Mm. It was so cheap and so nice. But, like, there's no way to trace supply chain, so I don't feel right making purchases there anymore. And so maybe that's that's sort of a switch. Oh, and then to finish on a positive note, a genuinely positive note, the initial book that we were assigned was Buried the Chains in our forced labor and human trafficking class. And uh, it tells some different narratives, like uh, of uh, William Wilberforce and John Newton, and we'll do a podcast on them sometime in the future. But to realize that in the 1800s, when the abolitionist movement began in earnest in England, slavery was normal. It was mm-hmm. so normal. You don't think about well, yeah. it. To me, to me, it was the equivalent of you see people on their smartphones in public. It's not weird. And, and trying to talk about normalcy, it's that it's just this is part of the world, and that's not going to change. That was and slavery. It, and it was it was everywhere. As Evan Burke says, it's the wheat that grew on every soil. There wasn't a place that wasn't sort of touched that didn't have in some way either by having slaves directly or having slave products right the the anglican church owned slaves it had connections with plantations so it was just pervasive and so the people that were trying to counter it were nobodies Mm -hmm. people like going back to that time like quakers Quakers were the were the main ones in the U.S. that started it. And in mm-hmm. fact, they actually were really involved on the on the English end of things too. But for me, That's it's right. that it's yeah, like no, like if we're talking about sort of like affirming things I learned, which we don't really focus on, like the happy a lot here, but like learning how vital, even though a lot of times they went unspoken or they were just recorded as a lady, but sort of women, and in particular women in the middle class, mm-hmm. not necessarily elite women, but women in the in the middle class or lower who were the servants who actually like purchased sugar, who said, "Well, I'm not going to go to market and purchase slave made sugar anymore. Deal with it." <laughs> you know that that there were women who who went around and and did basically what we have as our first sort of mass public petition, mm-hmm. just just to see you know sort of this initial sort of fighting of women for for the ending of slavery is a is a beautiful moment I think too because then you also see for the first time really women moving up within political organization you see sort of the same grassroots organization movements that were used by by early abolitionists then used for a number of other social justice things like um the suffragette movement so they're they're for for as like a lady it's a, it's a really affirming way. Uh, seeing various like church leaders or elites who kind of very much risk their career and their livelihoods to come out. Every time I read a story of a historical figure who inherited mass wealth that was built on slavery or inherited slaves and immediately set them free or tried to make reparations, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. You know, at a time when this was incredibly not normalized. When in fact they, by doing that, were, were suffering a social death of their own. I'm I'm very shocked and interested in, and then it's just sort of we now within the movement, the the stories I hear daily of people who started grassroots organizations in their own communities, who to to serve a population that's still not really understood, 
every sex worker organization that's out there fighting sex trafficking and labor trafficking simultaneously, despite the fact that what they do as a profession isn't really understood broadly, you know, and at risk to themselves is astounding to me. And then also too, you and I, I think are both in a very unique position and that we've both heard a lot of survivor stories. And, and every time I hear of someone who, who was managed to get out of the situation and just like has like incredible strength and ability to, to like turn around and then work in the field often is just insane. But, uh, to go back to, to England, like the fundamental point is that it was a bunch of people who weren't at the top making this happen. It was people who didn't have all the power. It was people in the church who weren't the Anglican church. People like John Newton came on later. They fought something that they were foolhardy to fight. And so there's so much that can be discouraging. Uh And no matter what part of the political spectrum you're on within the last decade, you're likely in a position where you've been frustrated by something politically. But that things can change. And in the case of England, they went from being a country that had slaves in multiple places to being a country that kept slavery from happening imperfectly. But the fact that they actually threw their resources to hindering it, I mean, that's a huge shift. Yeah. So when things start getting, look, when things are discouraging, just know there are people who have stood up for change and really made an effort in the face of incredible odds and, in this case, it's not a movie. <laughs> in this case, it's chattel slavery has ended. And even in Mauritania, it's on its way out, I believe. So think big and work toward it. Sometimes amazing things can happen. That may be like the most hopeful like end we've ever ended a podcast on. Probably. But it's good for us to remember that too. Yeah, no, there are positives. Yeah. And and that was that was a big one. It was just... We take it for granted now, but it wasn't taken for granted in the 1800s, like in terms of getting rid of it. So with that, uh, have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. And thanks for listening. Eat some delicious carbohydrates. Drink the wine. And if your family starts to do a thing about how the Native Americans didn't really suffer, pull up the current rate of human trafficking of Native American women that was just recently put up by the RCMP (laughs) and ruin their Thanksgiving. And if you like meat, have some turkey and ham. That's true. Yeah. Have some turkey. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.